You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. All right. Good morning, my Real Life family. How are you? We are shutting down one big story, and I'm so excited about it because it's been eight weeks, and I'm bored. So we're going to move on. After this, uh, no, I love the series. I love what God's been doing with it. And, and uh, so I want to go back and make sure that as we jump into this final sermon, that we catch the flow of the story as it's been unfolded in the Bible. And this is really important because sometimes we'll lose the big story for the little stories in the middle, and we can't do that. So week one, we talked about the fact that God is good. He made a good world full of good things, and he created you. Tove mayoed. Real good. That's you. That's you. That's what you stand in front of the bathroom mirror every day and you go, can you s- look at this? Tove mayoed. That's, that's how God made me. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You're not a whoops. You're not a disappointment to God. You are very good. That's what the Bible says. The problem isn't how we're made. The problem is the voices that we listen to. And that's what we talked about in week two. The voices that we let into our life that, dis, that navigate, pull us away, and, and get us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. And so what God does is he invites us back to the one voice. And we have a hard time trusting the story that he's trying to tell in our life. In Abraham, God finally found a man who would trust his story. And so God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the whole rest of the world. And that's really important for us to, to grapple with because um, we, we love the idea of God making our name great. But God isn't making your name great to make your name great. God would make your name great so that you could be a blessing conduit, right? You're a blessing trenchway, a blessing sluice box, if you will. You are a blessing uh, for, all, for my friend Mark Shimmer likes that one. You're a blessing sluice box. Uh, you, you are a blessing conduit between God and the rest of the world, and that's what God has made us for. That's how we have to be. Now, the next week, we talked about the fact that there's this cycle that plays out. Really, it's clean in the book of Judges. It's throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but it's your life and my life as well. Uh, and a lot of people want to define it as the sin cycle, but the truth is, this: no matter how much you love yourself, and I know that you love you some you, right? Uh, we love ourselves a lot. We love the story being about us. The bottom line is, the story's not about you. It's about God's limitless patience for you and his relentless pursuit that no matter how badly you mess it up, God refuses to give up on you. That's what the story's about. And that changes everything because that shapes, you should cheer that. That shapes everything about how we talk about God. It shapes how we talk about people. It shapes all of how we understand the story unfolding. There's no mountain he won't climb up, no shadow that he won't light up coming after you. He just, you just can't mess it up that bad. There's no wall he won't tear down. There's no lie he won't kick down. I probably said that backwards, whatever coming after you. He won't. Like there, there's no place that you're going to go where God won't find you because he loves you so much because you're, because you, you're Tove Mayode. Like he looks at you and goes, wow, you are a masterpiece. Now, if there was a way to 
not get into this cycle where we find ourselves stuck and God bails us out or whatever. If there was a way, Jesus comes as a man to be a model for us to follow. So when you don't know what to do in your life, when you have questions about how do I respond in this situation or this issue, when, you don't, when you're in doubt, act like Jesus. Like it'll never take you in a wrong place. It will never take you to the wrong place when you act like Jesus. And if you're like, I don't know what it looks like to act like Jesus in this situation, I got good news for you. God sent you a counselor, the spirit of truth. That's what the Bible says. And the spirit's job at work in you is to lead you into all truth. That's his job for you. And I I love that because that means that if I start to go the wrong way in trying to act like Jesus, the spirit comes in and goes, hey, quit. Stop it. You're, get back on the path. Like this is, this is the way it should look. I love that the Holy Spirit does that. And the, the reality is for most of us, the majority of the time, it's not really about what, um, whether or not we know what we're supposed to do. It's really way more about the fact that we don't want to listen to what the Spirit is telling us to do. We don't want to listen to it. Uh, I had a good, dear friend, uh, uh, we had a conversation yesterday, and he's, and, or not yesterday, a couple of days ago, and he was like, hey, I'm, I, you're saying this, and it's making me mad. I said, why are you mad? He goes, well, because I know that what you're saying is right. Like, and not about me making him mad, but it, like we know, we know that when, when we, the Spirit is leading us, we know the direction we're supposed to go. The problem is we just get too hard-hearted to respond to it. I don't want to do, I don't want to do what God's asking me to do. But here's the deal. If you want peace in your life, Jesus is the model. On the cross, Jesus delivers us. But he also gives us a model for how we're supposed to handle our most difficult moments, and that's really important. As Jesus is in the tomb, his followers are freaked out. They're panicked. They're afraid. They're hiding. The anxiety level is through the roof. But on that Saturday, what is God doing? He's resting. Why? Because that's what God does on the Sabbath, and he knows that his love is bigger than this situation. God's like, I know I can rest because I know what's on the other side of resurrection. And that's really important for us to get a hold of. Jesus worships its way through the cross. God is at rest. When you face your difficult circumstances in your life, how do you deal with them? Last week, the resurrected Christ gives us more than we need to succeed in life. And that's why God can rest, because he will give us more than we could ever need but we have to be willing to go through the grave to experience resurrection. See, that's the thing about resurrection is that we love the power of resurrection in our life, but in order to get it, we have to go through the grave. And the question for you and I is, what are we, what are we willing to let die so that we can experience the resurrected Christ at work in our life? This week, I want to talk about something that I think is just, it's stunning to me. Um, Let's pretend that you're well along in years and you know that you're coming to the end of your life and so you bring in your family and your closest loved ones and you bring them all into your room and you have one final conversation that you get to have with them. You know it's your last conversation and this is it. Whose cell phone is that? (laughs) You guys know what this does to me. 
I'd like to invite you into the world of attention deficit. Thank you um, for shiny, happy sounds. All right. What was I talking about? Last conversation. Yes. This is going to be online and everything. I'm so embarrassed. If you, had one, if you had one conversation left to have with the people that matter the most to you, what would you say? See, according to Matthew, what we're going to talk about today is the last conversation that Jesus has with his guys. This is it. He has one more shot to give them everything that they need to be able to move forward without him. And I think that what you and I need to understand is this conversation that Jesus has is way bigger than what you and I call the Great Commission. That's important, but it's, this is huge. So I want to get into it, pull it apart, see what we can learn from it. So we're going to read Matthew 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Because that's what you do when you encounter Jesus. You worship but some doubted. Now, here's a question. How many of them are there? There's 11 of them there. How many of them are worshiping? All of them. How many of them are doubting? Some of them at least, it says some doubted, but are they worshiping through their doubt? Like that's pretty potent right? Like your doubt isn't an excuse to not worship God. It's an invitation to worship him harder, right? Like, yeah, you're going to doubt. Yeah, you are. You are. You're going to doubt in your faith. You are. Worship him through it. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a lot of authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, this has been translated go as if it's a moral imperative. And, and so we look at that, and, and when I was raised in the church, I was always taught this, like, raise your right hand, go! You know, like you're going to be like, all right, I'm in the starting blocks. If I bend all the way down, I won't get back up. But um, I'll be <laughs> like, just finish it from here. Um, we get in the starting blocks, and we're like, okay, God, fire the gun because I am going. And we like even, I know some denominations where they will put a world map on the wall, throw a dart at it, and whatever country they hit, that's where they're going, right? And go, that's what I was taught growing up in the church. Like, this is about the globalization of Christianity. Ugh. What I never understood is why would you be so passionate about Africa or Lithuania? Or Nothing wrong with those people. They need Jesus but why would you be so passionate about that and let your neighbors go to hell? Like, why wouldn't you have that conversation right here where you're going? And what's interesting is Jesus here in the Greek doesn't give them an imperative. It's a participial phrase. It would be better translated as you're going. And that changes everything. Because for some of us, we are called to Africa or Lithuania or some other country. We are called to unreached people groups, yes. But lots of us, including me, not called to that. I love America. I do. I am called here, right? I'm not called. Now, God could change his mind, but today, as I stand here, I'm not called there. Like, maybe it does mean that, but what Jesus is saying isn't, go! It's, hey, as you're going, disciple. As you're going, 
to the store, as you're going to the bank, as you're going to work, as you're going to dinner, as you're going to whatever, to the bathroom, like whatever, like as you're going, disciple, wherever you're going, as you're going to school, disciple, just disciple, the whole earth, disciple all the nations, So some of you, yes, are going to be called, and some of them did. We know that at least five of them went to Asia Minor. Some of us are going to go and stand in the places that they they took Jesus and made disciples. But the idea of this isn't that, um, that they are called to this, charge the gates of hell. It's that they're invited into a lifestyle. And it raises a question for me. Is Jesus in his last conversation with them, like the last opportunity that he has to tell them about who he is and what God's like, is he just being bossy? Let me give you one more thing that you have to do. Right? Maybe there's more than that. Now, the good news is he says, I want you to go make disciples, and then he tells them how. There's two things. Number one, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one of the reasons why we baptize in our church. And if you haven't been baptized, you need to be. Because once you divorce all the church history doctrine sludge around it, at the end of the day, Jesus said that you need to be baptized. So you should be baptized. And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of of the age. Why does he need to even say that? Like, I, I think we pulled that great commission out, go make disciples of all the nations and all that stuff. And we divorce it from the rest of the conversation that Jesus is having. And it feels like it's just a command. It's just him being bossy. But what if there's something more going on here? We never can forget that Jesus, according to John 1, is the living word Everything that he does and everything that he says, you guys should know this phrase, it's in the text. It's always in the text. And so for you and I, we've got to mine out where is that coming from and how did we get there and why do we need to understand it that way? And, and that's where you and I start getting pushed back into God's word more and more and more as we follow Jesus. Yes, it's about the gospels, but it's about all of it and how the living word gets played out in my life and in your life. So I want to show you what God's doing. Now, if you'll remember the series that we did through Revelation, the, the, the series that shan't be named. The series that showed me why I should have never done that series. I will never, ever, ever, ever again do a series through the book of Revelation. Ever. Won't do it. Thank you. No, I'm not going to do it. If the Lord said to me, if the Lord said to me in my face, you're going to do the series again, I'd be like, I'm sorry. I'm not your guy will not endure the, the, the blessing opportunities that you gave me to honor the Lord um, in difficult circumstances. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, one of the things that we talked about in that series was kind of the nature of apocalyptic literature as a genre. Okay, What happens in apocalyptic literature is that it's a story that's always written to an oppressed people. 
And this story is about all these metaphors and ideas and word pictures about uh, these powers that are keeping a people oppressed. And then at some point, God or the, uh, the God figure in the story sends a deliverer, and that deliverer restores this oppressed people to a position of power. That's kind of how apocalyptic literature works as a genre. The thing that's so stunning about Revelation as an apocalyptic book is that the deliverer has already come. Like, we're already free from all of this mess because the tomb is empty. Like, that's so powerful, But in Daniel chapter 7, now remember Jesus calls himself the son of man. That's the title that he gives himself. And in fact, any time that somebody tries to call him son of David or son of God or any number of other titles that he's given, he always pulls them back to I'm the son of man. Well, why is that so important to him? Well, here's why. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. And then I looked, looked its, and it, then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, which I think would be a step down. Um, And behold, another beast, a second one, is like a bear, and it was raised up on one side. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. Now, here's a question before we read on. Who told it that? God, the ancient of days, told the beast to arise and devour much flesh. Like your theology ought to have a problem with that. It's another sermon for another day. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Who gave this beast dominion? God did. So the dominion, the power to rule over the earth is given to a beast, this horrible creature by the ancient of days. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. It's a little horn. It's a little guy. It's a little horn. Boop. And and it just pops out. And here's the thing. What we're going to learn is this horn has a short horns complex, is what it has. It's going to start being really boastful and tell these really big things about how awesome it is, right? And so here's what happens. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, boop, (laughs) before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And as I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So this little horn has been boasting. It's been saying all these great things. And all of a sudden, God shows up. Check this out. 
His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. What books? Books of life and the books of death. These are the books of judgment. Who holds the books of judgment? The Ancient of Days does, and this is important because, hey, little horn, you with your big mouth talking all this great thing, you think you're so awesome, little fella? God still holds the books of judgment. Never forget that. Let's read on. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. By whom? God. Listen to me. There is no authority over you that God hasn't placed. Now, I'm talking about government structure here. Because there is no follower of Jesus that should ever be able to say, hashtag not my president. Because God says he is. Whether you like it or not is of zero consequence. There is no authority over you that isn't placed there by God. And I think that rather than sitting in the position of critic, it would be better for us if we just prayed for him. Because no matter what you think about him, he's got some issues, let's be honest. And I love that I live in a country where I can stand on a platform that's going to go online. Every single person in the entire world with internet can watch what I'm about to say. I love that I live in a country where I can stand up and say he's got issues. But I would think we would also all agree that it's in all of our best interest if he does well. So rather than being critical, pray for him. Because he needs it. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> right? you, you, don't have the, you don't have the right before God to stand in opposition to our government and say, you are not my, because it's put there by God. God put it there. God put it there. It's there for your good. God gave it dominion and God took it away. As for the rest of the beast, the dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Wait a minute. Who's the deliverer in this apocalyptic tale? Son of man is, and he shows up ready to do the business of deliverance. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Why do we have to go and make disciples in all the nations? Why? Because his dominion reigns for them too. This isn't for just a little bitty group of people. This is for everybody. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Once the Ancient of Days gives dominion to the Son of Man, who's going to take it? Nobody. No one will ever take the position of Jesus away from you. No one. And his kingdom, one that shall not be 
destroyed. So the Ancient of Days looks at all these beasts that are trying to have power and dominion in the world, and he looks at all the destruction, and eventually he says, enough! I'm sending a deliverer, the Son of Man. What has Jesus called himself all along? Son of Man. So why does he begin by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Because he's the Son of Man. He's the one that Daniel talks about that's the deliverer with a kingdom that has no end. Now, I want to read a little bit further down. We're going to skip a few verses that talk about the beasts and their little conversations and how they tried to fight. But I want to, I want to jump a little bit further down Daniel 7. Here's what it says. He shall speak words against the Most High. This is a little horn. Boop, little horn. Little horn guy. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. By the way, you should probably underline that. Because he's going to cause problems for the saints. Who's that? Usins. I don't want to get all technical on you. And shall think to change the times in the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Another sermon for another day. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Who gets the dominion? You know why you're Tov Mayod? Because God had to create you capable to steward the dominion of a kingdom that has no end. That's who you are. Check you out. You're kind of a big deal. I don't know if you knew that. You're kind of a big deal. Now let's read on. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. For how long? Forever. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. What is Jesus calling them to? To go and make disciples? Yes, yes, of course, yes, absolutely. But he's calling them to something so much more beautiful. He's taking the authority that's been given by God to him and he's saying, guys, for the rest of your lives, you will have dominion in this world because of the empty tomb. Because of that, You've got to invite people into that kind of authority in this life because there's a whole lot of people that are out there trying to make you feel like you don't matter. And this is a kingdom that doesn't have an end. So what does that look like? Like Jesus gives them a mission. He gives them a purpose. He gives them meaning in their life. What does this look like? What does it look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Here's what's happening in the book of Acts. In chapter 7, there's a guy by the name of Stephen who's a Jesus follower, and he gets stoned. Not like Washington stone, like not, not that kind of stone. He gets rock stone at his head until he's dead. The, the high isn't quite the same. <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> still have a headache in the morning. But no, it, because, sorry, that was a bad joke. Because of... Because of the stoning of Stephen as a Jesus follower, 
this persecution breaks out in Jerusalem and it scatters a lot of the Jesus followers and they go all over the world, giving birth to the great missional movement of the book of Acts. (laughs) Like it's often rooted in persecution, these great moves of God. But what happens is everywhere they go, they start telling people about this Jesus guy. Let's read in Acts chapter 11. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. That's the Greek, the Greeks, spoke to the Greeks also preaching the the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas to Antioch because that's what church tradition does. It has to protect its tradition. We don't want to do anything out of bounds here. I mean, none of these people had any Bible college degrees. So they obviously weren't qualified to lead anything. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Do you understand that for you and I, The way that it looks is just like these people getting scattered. Everywhere they go, they start talking about this Jesus that's changed their life. And what happens is that because of that, they sparked a movement that you and I are sitting in this room today because of. Like, I wonder who's going to believe in Jesus because of you? Like, who... Who's going to, 2,000 years from now, go, man, I'm so glad that Real Life on the Palouse was faithful. Because they changed everything about how I understand who God is. I wonder, as you're going, like, think about this. How many Bible college degrees were in that group of people? Exactly none. None. How many um, qualified pastors did they have? By qualified, I mean credentialed. The answer is none. How much of the New Testament did they have? The answer is none. Right? How much of the Holy Spirit did they have? All of it. How much of the Holy Spirit do you have? It seems to me that you have everything they had, so you're just as qualified as they are. Let's go, church. Let's go. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. We take communion every week in our church. Uh, Communion for us is a couple of things. Number one, it's acknowledging this premise that Jesus laid his life down for us as a model for us to lay our life down for other people. But the second thing is that because communion is this thing, it's this sign that attaches us to a particular covenant, it's you and I saying to one another, I heard what he said and I may not have even liked it. I'm challenged and I'm going to have to go wrestle. I'm going to have to go think about that. 
but I'm telling all of you guys by taking communion together with you that I'm still in. I'm still in this thing we call Christianity because of these guys that got scattered and told, Jesus, told about Jesus everywhere they went. So they're going to pass that out. We have an open table. That means if anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold the elements till the end and we'll take them all together. While they're work, passing that out, we're going to work through a few implications. These are things that we thought were particularly important as our little band of sermonators uh, developed the sermon this week. Okay? Implication number one, no matter who you are, or where you're going, Jesus gives all of us a specific mission. All of us. And I want to be clear about this. It is not the church's job or the pastor's job to make disciples. It is the Christian's job. Every single one of us should be a disciple maker. You have already everything that you need to do that. Jesus promises that you do. And that leads me into our second implication, which is this. How we embrace that mission shapes our identity. Would people look at you? Do they see you as a, gosh, that's a person who loves the Lord. That person, that person is a disciple maker. I got to tell you, I got to brag on one of our students in our church. Um, that, and I already told her that I was going to brag on her and didn't really ask her for permission. But... Um, we have this young gal in our, in our church, in our youth ministry, and my daughter was talking to me about her the other day. And she said, Dad, do you know the girl Jasmine? I said, yeah, I know who she is. She goes, that girl talks about God all the time. I said, really? I know you should clap for that. Uh, that was her mom clapping right there, actually. Uh, you, don't stand up and clap, but you can clap. Uh, she just went through surgery, so I don't want her to stand up. But she, uh, my daughter said, she talks about God all the time. I said, really? She goes, yeah, every conversation she has, it always goes back to God, all of them. And I said to my daughter, I said, well, do you talk about God like that? She goes, no, that's weird for me. (laughs) I said, yeah, it's hard sometimes to do that, right? She's like, I don't know how she does it. It's amazing. Every conversation goes back to God for her. So that night, we had Thursday night service, and I saw Jasmine, and I said, hey, you want to know what my daughter said about you? My daughter said, you talk about God all the time. And she goes, he's awesome. She, she's like, of course I talk about God all the time. He's awesome. I was like, yes. I, I know, like, it shapes her identity, right? Who she is before God, but who she is in the world, like how she functions in the world. Like, how we embrace this mission shapes our identity in the world and how we show up, okay? Um, by the way, there's a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians that want to be in the position of critic, of people that are trying to do it. And I'm not talking about just like paid staff or whatever, but they want to sit back and criticize as Christians try to share their faith and make disciples. They want to criticize. I just want to be real clear. Um, If you're discipling people, you don't have time to be critical. The only people who have time to be critical are people who aren't discipling anyone. So if you want to be critical about how somebody else is trying to share their faith, shut up. First of all, and secondly, it says way more about your faith and where you're at in your disciple making than it does about them. Because when you're discipling four or five people, you don't have time to be critical. You just don't have time for it. 
Who's the people on your list? If you're like, I don't, I, who's, give me one, put one person on your list. Who's the one person that you're dis- intentionally discipling? That's not your children. That's like every human being on the planet, Christian or not, is discipling their kids in something. Um, who's the person that you're intentionally discipling? The one person. Who's the two people? Like if you don't have that, then you don't have the right to criticize those who are trying to take a swing at it. Their identi- our identity as Christians, like criticism, it's not a spiritual gift. It's not. It's not something that you get to show up with as a Christian. Third, third implication, as we build relationships with others, how they respond to us doesn't change our mission or our identity. Because here's what's going to happen. Eventually, as you start to try to share your faith, somebody's going to be non-responsive to you. They were non-responsive to Jesus himself, so they're going to reject what you're saying. So somebody at some point is going to do that. And for a lot of us, we're like, ow, that stings. I must just not be good at it. Now, you may be great at it. And, and the truth is, whether, whether or not they respond correctly, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change who you are. You still have the same mission, the same call to show up with the same kind of identity in Christ. Last implication is more of a question. And for those of you that have been doing the one big story with your kids, um, maybe this is the question for you around your dinner table this week. Or maybe this is your question for you in your small group this week as you're considering what this looks like to be a disciple maker in your life. How are we fulfilling this mission? This mission of discipling the entire world. How are we fulfilling it? And I'm not talking about theoretically or like I'm a part of a church that does some great things. Like, what are the concrete, real, hard things that you are doing specifically to make disciples in your life? What are they? Let's talk about those. And if you're like, there's nothing, okay, what could there be? What could you start doing today that would do that? This idea of communion for us is this invitation back to the simple reality that the way that we're going to fulfill our mission is by laying our life down the way that our Savior modeled for us. And so this reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let, let, let me pray. Lord, uh, thanks for just this incredible story of love for us. Thanks for this amazing invitation to make disciples. Thanks for your spirit to guide us and empower us. Thank you for your word that is this truth that we can build our conversations around. And God, most of all, thank you for your son as this living model that helps us to know how to actually walk it out. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.